uh, it's a story that needs to be told. I, I've run into a lot of parents over the years who have just an enormous amount of frustration about how poorly the system works. You know, we, we talk and talk and talk about recovery, but you don't see any recovery in the mainstream system. On this podcast, Mindy Greiling, a mental health advocate and former state representative, has hosted a series of conversations around mental health care in Minnesota. The first was with Elisa Roth on the state's criminal treatment of mental illness, and the second with Dr. George Realmuto on mental health and substance abuse. In this third and final installment in the mental health series, Mindy talks about recovery with John Trepp, who she calls a maverick and wishes there were more like him in the mental health system. Trepp is author of Lodge Magic and is former executive director of Tasks Unlimited, Minnesota's Fairweather Lodge program, which provides housing and recovery services for people with mental illness. This conversation was recorded in September 2020. Hello, this is Mindy Greiling, and I'm really pleased to be here today with John Trepp. Um, John is uh, someone I've looked to for sage advice in the mental health system for many years. He is uh, a former executive director of Tasks Unlimited, which is a wonderful total package program for people with serious mental illness. And like myself, um, he's an author of a book, and his book is called Lodge Magic. It came out um, several years ago, and it was a book that I read when I was looking for services for our son, Jim, who has schizoaffective disorder. And um, I read the book, and I thought that's where uh, Jim could do really well, and he did for quite a few years. So John... um, I know you were the second executive director of TAS Unlimited, but could you give us just a thumbnail sketch of what TAS is all about? Thanks for having me on here. I'm John. TAS has grown to provide a variety of mental health programs, but the signature program at TAS is called the Fairweather Lodge. And uh, this was a, a model developed by Dr. George Fairweather out in California in the early 60s. It was uh, started here in Minnesota in uh, the very late 60s. And um, by the time I uh, retired in 09, we had, uh, I think, two dozen lodges uh, scattered around the Twin Cities. Now, a lodge um, is a little hard to explain. It's a little bit like a group home, but but very different than a group home. Uh, a lodge is where uh, uh, a group of people live, but there's no staffing. The staff is not uh, on site at all, and then the the, uh, the house is managed by the people that uh, live there. It's also a unique thing about it uh, compared to some other pro- type of residential programs is it's not time limited, and it's also a uh, uh, program where everyone's expected to be employed, and so uh, typically people are employed uh uh, at least 20 hours a week, often 40 hours a week, and they live there for a long time. Uh, I just happened to run into a couple of guys the other day uh, who live in my neighborhood here. Who There's four guys in this particular lodge over here in South Minneapolis, and the these four guys, a couple of them have been in the lodge for 40 years, but, but the four of them together have been in a group for, for 17 years. They've had no turnover. They're, uh, yeah, they're just amazing. They don't get any staffing at all now. They they have a person who is responsible for checking in on them. But since the pandemic, six months, that's six months now, they haven't, uh, that person hasn't even been in the lodge. So they're just uh, text messages them, uh, but they, they've been completely on their own. And it's also, you know, they pay their own way and everything too. You know, it's not subsidized at all. That's why it's why your book is called Lodge Magic, and I can attest that magic happens in those lodges, and we'll probably get back to talking a little bit about that type of recovery before we get done here. Um, I had a chance this spring to meet Dr. E. Fuller Torrey, who I think of as the um, ideal quintessential psychiatrist, and he's written many books. Uh, any, including surviving schizophrenia. That's his specialty. He had a sister with schizophrenia. And I had a chance to meet him because um, he wrote a testimonial for my book and, and I actually uh, got invited to go to his home and it was such a treat for me. And one of the things we discussed was the Fairweather Lodge programs that Pass Unlimited is Minnesota's version of. And he was lamenting that 
that there just doesn't seem to be, even though he thinks of Fairweather Lodges as the ideal place for people with serious mental illness, um, that they don't seem to be expanding. And I wonder, John, if you have any insight on why that is. Well, you know, I belong to the national organization that uh, tries to work on that. And I don't think we have consensus about why it hasn't grown the way we would expect it to. My opinion about that is that it's because it's a grassroots kind of model. You know, our, we're in this country, we're in love with top-down medical models where the people at the top are making the decisions about things. And the beautiful part about the uh, Fairweather Lodge, but maybe also the problematic part in terms of marketing it, is that it's a grassroots model. The the uh, These guys I talk about, ran into the other day, these four guys, they make all their own decisions. They're not, they're, you know, staff checks in on them once in a while, asks what they need, offers some advice about stuff. They can take or leave the advice. They make all their own rules. Uh, it's not a model that uh, emphasizes how wonderful the professionals are. And I think that was Dr. Fairweather's insight uh, back in the 60s. I, I happen to have opportunity to meet Dr. Fairweather. He's, he's passed away now, but I met him in later years. And and he said, you know, what he, what he noticed when he was working in the 60s was that the staff, you know, the staff were sincere and they tried hard uh, and then they went home. And they went home and that was it. They didn't care until they came back to work again the next day. And and what he created with the lodge is a program where, you know, your support system is the other folks in the program uh, helping each other. And they don't go home at four o'clock or five o'clock. They're there all the time and they're always there for each other. And, and they don't need they don't need staff telling them what to do and bossing them around there. It's all about uh uh, the cons- group of consumers, the peer, the peer support model, uh, making decisions. And, you know, we've had a tremendous success with it here in Minnesota. Well, I just, uh, I think it's a wonderful program and I just wish there were more opportunities. One thing I think is magical, uh, one of many things that's magical about Pass Unlimited is the fact that the staff, their staff at the work sites, you know, people when they're relaxing at home, which the lodges are truly our homes. Um, but then the stress can come in when you're working or trying to be more on and around more people and so forth. But TAS has the uh, staff often or almost always on the work sites. And I think that's that's a really, really huge benefit. As you know, Mindy, uh, you know, that was a, a big emphasis at at task, at least when I was there, and I think still is, is the employment piece. Uh, we strongly believe that people should be employed. Uh, in fact, <laughs> one of these guys I was talking to last week retired last year at age 80. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I retired a lot earlier than that. But at any rate, uh, you know, it's good and healthy for people to work. And I think in our mental health system, we, we tend to uh, have this attitude of uh, that work is, work is a bad idea. I've had a lot of... Uh, you know, mental health professionals over the years tell me, oh, we really don't want this person to work because work is stressful. Well, yeah, of course, work is stressful. Life is stressful. You know, living in your own apartment without a job and being poor, that's pretty stressful too. We recognize that there's some stress involved in work and we try to have uh, some staff on duty, but it's, you know, a lot of times, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly what contract Jim was on, but a lot of times we might have a we might have a, a crew working in a building where there's maybe, you know, 18 or 20 uh, different folks scattered throughout the building. We might have one staff on duty uh, in that building that they can they can uh, be accessed if they need help. What we find most of the time is that people are, once they have the job skills and once they learn how to do stuff, they don't have a lot of problems at work most of the time. And um you know, I think what happens in a normal job is they run into some problem. They don't know how to do it and they get into a conflict with somebody and that, that costs them the job. Um, I think most people with mental illness have, you know, have horrible employment histories, but usually they don't get fired. Usually they quit. Usually they stop going to work or they walk off the job or something. Um, and if you have just a little support there to help people, uh, get back, you know, talk for a couple of minutes and get back to work, that usually helps a lot. So you mentioned the importance of work and having uh, a good place to live. And um, what 
do you see as some other components of the mental health system that we, if we were going to have an ideal mental health system, even if we could think of something even better than TAS Unlimited, but I think there's an awful lot of magical components there. What would be some of the things that well, you put yeah. in? <laughs> yeah. We're so far away from that that it's it's I don't even know where to start. And then so I did think about it, and I came up with uh, uh, four different uh, areas in which things, at least four components of building an ideal system. The first was we have to understand the brain a lot better. You know, we we we're really a hundred years behind medically, a uh, hundred years behind our understanding of other major organs, um, liver transplants, and uh, heart. Uh, bypass surgeries and stuff like that. We really don't know much at all about the brain. And, uh, you know, you and I just had our rotator cuffs. You had yours this year. I had mine last year. You know, it, now my shoulder works fine. Yours is recovering. Mine is mine's pretty good. I'm playing ball again and, and uh, it's great. Um, we don't really know how to fix the brain. And so that's a, that's a big piece of it. Another thing I think would be create a a person-centered or consumer-centered, patient-centered, whatever term you want to use uh, uh, kind of system. That word gets thrown around, but we don't have it at all. It would mean um, uh, that they would be eliminating the barriers. We have all these barriers now. Oh, you get you get this service only for a certain length of time, and then you're timed out of it, or you only get so much of it. Uh, and it's not user friendly at all. We need to have, I mean, that would have to be part of the, uh, the person centered program would be to have it much more user friendly than it is today. Um, you know, again, I, going back to the surgeries we had, I found when I went in for my shoulder surgery and I imagine you did too, the staff were quite friendly. You know, I was happy to be there. It wasn't the, you know, what he was talking about an involuntary system there. Um, a third thing would be integrated uh, services. Um, at TAS, we try to integrate the employment and the mental health and the residential, but that's not typically done. You know, typically these things are all separated. Chemical dependency is another one. And then the last one is recovery, you know, just a recovery orientation. We really need to, to uh, people talk about recovery, but but I don't think the people that are running the system are working, typically even people working uh, direct service in the system, they don't believe in recovery. Well, I think that um, TAS Unlimited is, you know, you can see people who are recovered there. And I don't, you don't see that a lot of places. And, um, you know, Jim, as you know, was at TAS Unlimited for a decade. And then for the second decade of his mental illness, he hasn't been there. So we've experienced the other part of the mental health system. And, um, I can, my next question after we get off of this one is going to be about um, some other of, of the differences. But one of the um, big differences and a highlight at TAS that we haven't yet talked about is friendships. And um, when Jim was at TAS Unlimited for the first time, once he became ill, because once you become ill with a serious mental illness, often you're isolated, you lose your confidence, you're voices are yammering at you so you can't focus. But at Tasks Unlimited, where people become stable due to, you know, regular taking of meds because they all take them together and monitor each other. Parents don't have to do that anymore. And they go to work and that's stabilizing and a good routine. So important for people with mental illness. But then they develop these rich friendships. And Jim still has friends, even though he hasn't been there for 10 years, that he made at TAS Unlimited. One of them was just at our house and they were sitting on our deck um, uh, last week and talked for like two hours and could have talked longer, I'm sure, because they just have this this rich friendship. So to me, that's one of the um, parts that the second half of our journey in the mental health system, um, they don't pay any attention to or think it's even important. I've attended the NAMI Ramsey County Adult Mental Health Advisory Council. And on behalf of NAMI Ramsey, who really advocates for a friends program of some sort, um, they just, the staff at Ramsey County didn't even want to hear about it. They didn't think that was anything the mental health system should get involved in or spend any money on. So do you want to comment on that, John, the topic of friends? Well, I mean, 
in anybody who's ever raised uh, teenagers knows that peer groups are enormously important. You know, you can make, you can talk all you want about what the rules of your family are and what the rules of the school are and the rules and norms of the community. But a person's, uh, when you're a teenager, your peer group is enormously important in, in shaping your behavior and how you think about things, how you see the world. You know, I think folks with have serious mental illnesses, things like schizophrenia, schizoaffective, uh, bipolar. They often develop these uh, conditions during their teenage years, and they maybe not be diagnosed right away, but they, these the conditions are coming on at that time. And it prevents them from making friends. Uh, they, they don't have the same, often don't have as good as social skills and don't have the friendship. Um, and that's one of the things when you, I talk to parents over and over again, it's, oh, my you know, my son or daughter, they had friends when they were in high school, but when they got sick, all their their friends uh, abandoned them. And part, I don't think we can be too hard on the friends. I think the friends don't understand the mental illness. They don't know what's going on. And so they fall away. And, you know, here's a person in their late teens, early 20s, who isn't, you know, probably isn't working. They probably aren't uh, developing relationships. They're not, they're not making friends. Um, I was just talking to these two, these a couple of these guys from this this lodge that I ran into the other day. You know, one, a couple of them were talking about their mothers. They're very worried about their mothers, who are in both of them are elderly women in nursing homes, and they're concerned about the COVID and stuff. But but uh, the one guy said, "Yeah, my my family's all passed away. This is my family. These three guys I've lived with for seventeen years." And these guys, you know, they go fishing, they go to Alaska, they go do all this stuff together. There are other groups in the lodge, you know, where they, they take trips together. And these, I said these guys, and this is not a recent conversation, years ago, I said these guys, you know, it's really problematic when you guys all have to go away for a week together because we have to replace all of you at work. It's a, you know, it's kind of a, handicap kind of a hardship for you <laughs> <laughs> work and stuff and they said but these are the guys we want to spend our time with that is that is what helps families too you know i can say as as a mother to have to you know in the normal scheme of things people with mental illness do serious mental illness do die early for a variety of reasons but most parents even with children with serious mental illness like me are going to die before their 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 sons and daughters. And so um, that is the most comforting thing of all for a parent is to have exactly what you just talked about, of family, another family, people, everybody else has a family that they can, uh, you know, rely on and take trips with or just sit around and remember things with. And people with mental illness in the regular mental health system may not have that. May, they may have staff, you know, but Jim's opinion is anyone who's paid to be with him is not a real friend. You know, they're just paid and that doesn't count a bit. Jim is absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, I knew Jim when, when I was working and Jim was in the program. I like Jim, but I, Jim's not my friend. Right. Exactly. You know? No. And so the, but the people in the lodge or the people, so the mental health system, the rest of it, I think, you know, my strong bias obviously is, that Ramsey County is wrong to say, no, we don't um, want to have anything to do with a friends program and they should rethink that and all mental health systems um, should. Typically our mental health system doesn't want to tackle employment. They don't want to tackle uh, chemical use. They're kind of in drug kicking and screaming into dealing with that. They don't want to, they don't want to tackle long-term planning. They don't want to tackle uh, how you're doing with your family. They don't want to tackle friends. And that's so tragic because, you know, I'm sure it's true for you and me and, and most of the people listening to this, your friends are your life. You know, the relationships you have with other people at the end, you know, I'm, like I say, I'm retired now. And I think, you know, there's a point when you're in your thirties or forties that you're, you're all about your job and stuff. But now, you know, I hang out with my other old geezer friends who are all retired. Nobody talks about the work they did. They talk about their family. They talk about their relationships. They talk about their buddies and the, their fishing trips and 
card games and stuff like that. That's what counts for people. They don't care about the work. You know, maybe this guy was professional and made a lot of money, and this guy over here uh, was an electrician, and this guy here, you know, sold suits at the mall or something. Nobody cares about that anymore. What you care about is the relationships and the friends that you've made over the years. That's what keeps you going. Right. So, uh, yes, we, we definitely should do more with that. Um, one thing, once I got out in the world and uh, Jim with Jim and he got out in the world of the other type of mental health system, and I think it's affected uh, TAS Unlimited, too. And that is um, the 30 day or 90 day programs, you know, chemical dependency you mentioned. And so Jim has done a lot of 30 day programs. It seems to be that you're supposed to be fixed with chemical substance abuse issues in 30 days. And then for mental health crises, if you manage to get in a hospital and then come to the, you know, step down program, then you're, then you have 90 days or up to 90 days in these, you know, intensive residential treatment services, places, and you're, then you're supposed to be fixed. So, so one of the great things about the Lodge model, and I didn't design that, was Dr. Fairweather that designed it, is that it's open-ended. It's not, it's not a 90-day limit. It's not a 12-month limit. Like I say, there's guys that are there 40 years you know, and, and, and why should they leave? And I, I used to run into trouble with, you know, the county and state officials saying, gee, we see that this guy's been in the lodge for 24 years and he's never been hospitalized in that all, all that time. Can't, can't you move him on to, to more independent living? And I say independent, he's, what do you mean independent? He's, he's working full time. He gets hardly any staff support at all. He's living with these other people that he likes. That's independent living. And the reason he hasn't been back in the hospital in the last 24 years is he has that support that he needs. Why in the world do you want to push him out? And I mean, he can, and of course, as you know, people can leave the lodge anytime they want. There's no, you know, the doors aren't locked. Anybody can go and, you know, get their own apartment, find a different job anytime they want. There's no, nobody's stopping them from doing that. But most of these guys that, that I talk to, they're not, they're not eager to do that. They're not looking for a different place to live or a different place to work they like what they got we and long-term stability is such is so good for people the other thing i want to say about that is when i we i didn't start the lodge program at TAS. it was there when i when i came in 78 but but they didn't have the community-based training available so i started that first community-based training lodge training program and we didn't have any funding and in that initial program we admitted people to the training lodge and they were there until they were ready to graduate over time we got connected and that was my fault i, I connected us to to funding streams to be able to pay for everything we needed to pay for but with the funding stream came all these uh, strings and ropes and now i guess they're down to this after, since i left they're down to the strict 90-day thing well you know some people are ready uh, some people come into the training lodge and they're ready to move on to a, a regular lodge without any staff. And then we just back up and save our listeners. The, the training lodge would have more staffing, more help. They're trying to help people learn how to do the stuff they need to do. And then they go to the lodge, they get hardly any staffing at all. So some people are ready for that in 90 days. Some people take 180 days. I, we had guys that took, you know, 200 plus days before they were ready to go. It makes no sense to just you know, we, we talk about this goes back to this person-centered uh, services, you know. I mean, different people progress at different uh, rates. A lot of it has to do, of course, with how, you know, ill were they when they came in, how, you know, some of them are a little more stable when they come in. Some of them are very unstable when they come in. Yes. Well, Jim took, uh, he must have been not the slowest, but not the fastest. He took five months to get out of the training lodge. So if he were starting out there now and only got, 90 days, he would have not survived and not been able to have those 10 wonderful years at TAS Unlimited. So this is one thing, John, I find um, kind of the height of hypocrisy about our mental health system in Minnesota, and I'm sure all over the country or maybe the world. And that is that, um, um, you know, we talk about person-centered care, we talk about independence, we talk about self-sufficiency and, you know, persons getting to decide themselves what they want to do. But then we say, 
you're done after 30 days of chemical dependency, never mind that you're still in bad shape or you're, you have to go to a training lodge now and sink or swim. And if you sink too bad for you, you've been 90 days in the training lodge. I mean, it's not, we are speaking out of both sides of our mouth about person-centered care when it comes to these artificial deadlines. When you say speaking out of both sides of our mouth, that would be that's what I would call a, a uh, positive spin on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you call it, John? I love the way you put things. <laughs> There's another part of the anatomy that comes to mind, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Do you have any insight about where these artificial deadlines came from? How much does money play into that? Did insurance companies dictate that? Are governments trying to spend money? Do you have any insight on... Usually they say follow the money if there's something really stupid going on. Is it the money or is it some other reason? You know, we're in love with this this concept of managed care. And um, I'm not an expert on how managed care works in the area of physical health, but it certainly, it certainly is not an effective way to approach mental health. Um, managed care is all about denying care. That's what that's what managed care means. And managed care managed is a nice positive kind of term, but you know it's all about telling people they can't get the services. I had a I had a colleague who uh, left Minnesota, went to another state, and uh, worked in a clinic there. Fellow came back, and we had this is a year or so later, and we had lunch one day. And he was saying, oh, we're really, this where I work now, we're really big on recovery. And I said, really? Well, that's great. He says, yeah. When people start our, come into our, walk into our clinic, we give them a pamphlet on recovery. We talk about how good recovery is. And I said, that's wonderful. He said, and then at 24 months, we tell them, congratulations, you're recovered. You're recovered. Huh? You, are, you are getting no more services. <laughs> you are done, you are done getting services from your your uh, managed care provider here. Um, I hope it ha- I hope you do well because we're giving you any more services. Well, that's what I hate about um, the current mental health system be- because it's you know I think it's often designed for people that don't have schizophrenia or serious bipolar oh, disorder. Let me say a couple more things about that. And back in the. 40s and 50s, people with major mental illnesses were typically in state hospitals, and they were there for a long time. I met people when I first came to TAS who were in the Lodge program who had been hospitalized only one time, and that hospitalization lasted 18 years. And that's maybe not a great system. I'm not pushing that. But then what happened was we, we, we got in this idea, we got to move people along, move people along, push them out into the community. We were supposed to, the money was supposed to follow them. But the money that came into the community did not end up serving that same group of people. The, the money that, that was moved from the state institutions out into these community mental health centers was much more likely to go to what I would call the worried well. I'm not, I'm not saying that people that, you know, you and I and friends we know that have jobs and families and, and are not considered to be serious mentally ill that they don't deserve services i'm not saying that at all but we don't we really abandon the people with serious mental illness and a large part of that is because we don't believe in recovery and so people don't want to work with that and people you know you you i i knew a lot of psychiatrists i don't know if you've we've talked we haven't talked about this but i knew a lot of psychiatrists when i was working who never ever saw anyone with schizophrenia, never ever saw anyone with schizoaffective because those people are poor. You know, those people are on on Medicaid or, or something like Medicaid and the government doesn't pay very much for that. And so they only worked with people that had, uh, you know, more uh, higher paying uh, insurance coverages. Exactly. And I remember um, one psychiatrist who had been in a different practice who came to TAS Unlimited while Jim was there, who was just um, so surprised and had his eyes opened as to what people with schizophrenia could do and what they were doing at TAS Unlimited. It was the gentleman, you're, you're, I think you're mentioning when, I know remember when he retired, I think he's passed away here, but I think when he retired, uh, when I was, he retired before I did. And, and he told me, you know, that, 
I know this is a story that'll irritate people too, but the listeners, but he said there were two things he was going to miss in retirement. One was going to all the sporting events like the Indianapolis 500 and the Super Bowl and the World Series and stuff like that, free of charge, paid for by the drug companies. And and the other thing that he was going to miss was the four hours a week he spent working with the lodge folks because he said, you know, the rest of my practice, nobody gets better. Wow. You know, this is the lot. The folks at the lodge are all getting better. They're healthier. They're going to work. They they're doing stuff. They, you know, they're taking, they're going to Europe on vacations and, and, and buying cars and, and saving for retirement stuff. It's just fun to work with these guys. He was shocked by that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he was. Jump in and add one other thing on that. We yes. had a lot of staff over the years that have come to Task Unlimited when I was working there, and they maybe had been in part of the mental health system somewhere else before. And um, toward the end, I wasn't directly supervising these people, you know, because I was the, the CEO when they were a couple notches down on the ladder there. But but I would I would always try to find a chance after they'd been there for like maybe 90 days, roughly the staff people. And I'd pull them apart and I'd say, well, what surprises you? That's I'm not, I don't want, I'm not asking you what you like or don't like about death limit. I want to know what you like about the lot, what surprises you about the lodge model and what we're doing here. And the one thing that they would say pretty consistently was I had no idea how capable these people are. You know, these, these, I thought these, I worked with this field for years. I didn't think people could do stuff. And now I get here and you're telling me not to do it, let them do it. And it turns, and I would have thought that was, that was nuts before. And now they can do it. I find out, I just sit here and watch them. They, they do most of the stuff that they need to do all by themselves. I would like to see people in all parts of the mental health system when they're training, you know, coming up, being educated to spend you know, a week at uh, at a lodge or trailing somebody who works for TAS Unlimited just so they could know that and carry it off into other parts of the mental health system. TAS Unlimited is a community provider. We hear so much nowadays about community care. We want people to get help in the community. And yet there is the crisis um, times for everybody, not very often at TAS, as we just heard, but most places, and sometimes even at TAS, Jim had to go to the hospital a couple times when he was at TAS Unlimited, usually connected with him using substances of some sort. And um, so at those times, now we have this big blockage of before you can get into the hospitals. And then some people say we need more hospital beds. Some people say we need, we should stick to community care. And my personal opinion is we need both because if you're in huge crisis, even a place like TAS Unlimited has to occasionally send people to the hospital. Um, But yet um, we don't have enough hospital beds. And so what's your take on that? Do you think if we had more successful community care, we could get away with fewer hospital beds, or will we always need some? And do you think we have enough? Well, I, I don't know what the number, the last question, how many, I don't know what that number is or percentage wise or per hundred thousand population. I don't know what those numbers would be, but clearly we need a, a continuum. You know, you need, you need some, you need some mobile crisis units that are not residential. You also need, you know, the one or two night crisis bed kind of situation. You need the two week uh, community hospital, uh, psych ward kind of thing. And you need long-term care. I mean, there are people that, that, that are going to need long-term care and, and, you know, this managed care concept that we have in our our mind, uh, is, is, is not very friendly toward those things. It's all designed toward get people out of the system. Yep. So that's definitely, um, definitely what I see too. Well, we're coming to the end. I have two more questions I want to cover. And one of them is, of course, I am a family member. So one of them is about the role of families in the mental health system. As I said, when Jim was starting out is when he was at Pass Unlimited. We had a couple years of disastrous in and out of the hospital, trying to have him be at our house type of years. But then when he was at Pass Unlimited, um, we were spoiled as family members because we were 
communicated with. And, um, you know, the staff treated us as if we were part of the team, which we thought we were too. And, and um, it certainly worked out wonderfully. If there was any problems with Jim, you know, all I had to do was shoot an email to his lodge coordinator and then she or he would check into it and we could communicate on both ends and see what someone was seeing and one or the other side would catch things early and the other side, the family or the staff could look for it. And it just seemed to work out really well. And Jim took it as, yes, we were part of the team. He didn't at all resent us, you know, communicating. I was invited to meetings occasionally. Most of the time I didn't need to go at all, but I at least got to see people occasionally face to face. And Jim and I met in a coffee shop with his lodge coordinator a couple times when things weren't going as well. And we all talked about it and troubleshooted and or shot, whatever that word is. And um, Jim just took that as um, that was a normal part of life for him and for us. And that would all work together. When he got in the other half of the mental of his time in the mental health system, we found it, it was night and day. And we found that um, unless we asked to be involved, um, we typically weren't, or maybe there would be a, you know, the really good places, like he was at Andrew Residence, was really good with families. We met with them quarterly to see how he was doing, but it wasn't, you know, day-to-day working, but they were very available. They would talk. But um, most places where he was, like with ACT teams or just dealing with having a case manager, wherever he might be, um, they were very standoffish or even um, not friendly about us being involved. We would get answers if we absolutely asked. But otherwise, um, we were, you know, kind of supposed to stay back. And and I think um, that didn't work out very well for Jim, as anyone can see if they, you know, read my book. Um, and so why did TAS do it so well? And why do you think the rest of the mental health system does that so poorly? Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear the, the, I'm glad to hear your perception that it went well. I didn't feel we were very good at that. Uh, and if I, if I was going to start over and do another 30 years running a task limit, that would be a major thing I'd try to do a better job of. One of the things that, you know, I think that's part of what's going on there is that a lot of the people coming into the program are, let's say, maybe in their 20s. And a lot of the direct service staff that are starting out uh, in these direct service positions are in their 20s. And the parents are usually in their 50s. The staff, quite frankly, are scared to death of the parents. And they consider the parents to be problems, you know, and I would talk to staff about, oh, I want you to invite, you know, uh, we got this, this garden planting coming up here uh, next weekend. We want to, you want to try to get the families over to maybe, you know, work together and planting a garden or something a lot. So, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't, <laughs> I don't like I don't like other, I don't like my parents much. I certainly heck don't want to go on and talk to my lodge members' parents and stuff like that. They're, they're sort of afraid of them. That's part of it. They haven't been trained for that. And I don't think that that's unique to task limit. I don't think they get trained for that anywhere. I think as I grew, as I matured by the time I retired in my sixties, then I was a little more sympathetic to the, you know, the plight of parents uh, trying to figure out uh, what to do about that. You know, everybody wants to see their kids do well. And it's very frustrating. And, you, you know, I don't need to tell you this. I think I've, I've read your book and I, I've heard the story even before I read your book. But uh, it's so frustrating when you've got this bright child and you, you know, you've got high expectations for them. And the last thing you're thinking of when they're growing up is they're going to, they're going to develop this terrible mental illness that's going to do derail their life. And when it happens, it's very frustrating for parents. And it, and it's, it makes it hard for the parents to talk to the staff and hard for the staff to talk to their parents. You know, clearly now I can, looking back at, I can see very clearly that, that, that ha- the parents have to be the family members, not just parents, because sometimes it's brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's even kids. You know, sometimes the people in the lodge program have kids that are that are involved, and they have to be part of the of the treatment team. Really, if you don't mean me to call it treatment team, but they have to be part of the solution to having this person 
get healthy and to be recovered and stuff like that. Well, I'm sympathetic to the staff, you know, the young staff, like you mentioned, um, because I was a, an elementary teacher. And, and so there wasn't that big age gap between the parents and me when I was teaching, uh, because, you know, I started out when I was 22 and some of them were, you know, only a couple years older than me at times. But even so, um, I think uh, as a new teacher, and I only managed to teach for five years and went on to other things, but, um, but I think parents are intimidating. So I always, because they're, you know, they're judges, they want to know that things are good for their kids and they want to know what are you doing about that. And so I think the mental health system is similar and I, and you just said that it is. And so I'm, you know, I'm sympathetic with that, but on the other hand, especially if Jim isn't doing well, um, I, I become, I think a lot of parents become, you know, very active and have to learn to be assertive advocates. I didn't have to do that at TAS, but I had to do it more than I care to think about um, in the second part of our time in the mental health system. I, I remember when our, our kids were growing up, we sometimes didn't feel that the communications from the <laughs> from the teachers at school or the coaches on their team was as good as it could be. And I know now I've got grandkids and, and my kids are complaining about their communication. So that's, it's always difficult. You know, people don't get training in this. And I think the one thing I, if we did any, if I did anything right on this, in this topic, uh, this domain at task is that at least... I at least would preach to our staff that we needed to talk to parents and we needed to involve parents and stuff. We didn't always do it as well as I'd like to, but we just, we just, you know, I was always on their case about trying, trying to do it. You set the, the, the model. And then also um, TAS had, um, I think you did it maybe twice a year. You had uh, potlucks, which were for families and for lodges and everybody brought food. There were mountains of food. It all got eaten, as I recall. Uh, but it was, you know, so families got to see that people in the lodge are pretty darn good cooks, too, and yeah. bring their yeah. favorite things. And there was no way to tell who brought what food, and it was all delicious. But that it also then other families got to meet other families, staff, you know, in a more relaxed atmosphere could, you know, joke around with families and not have to just be talking to one set of concerned parents or something. And lodges, lodge members, you know, could see that the staff and their families were friendly. And that just facilitated and oiled the whole thing. And then also um, at TAS, there were family meetings. I think um, maybe, I don't know if they were once a month or not, but something on that order that were optional for families. But I often went and then I got to meet other families. There might be a topic where, um, you know, the TAS person coordinating the meeting, could share things. I remember one time the um, coordinator talked about, you know, where could you buy clothes, you know, because often people uh, with serious mental illness taking these heavy duty drugs gain a lot of weight due to the interactions going on in their body that make them feel artificially hungry. And um, that happened to Jim. And so one topic just was where to buy clothes for you know, because you needed bigger clothes sometimes than what you could find at the mall. And um, I wrote about, I had a chapter in that about my book, in my book about that. And um, so that, but that just was, uh, those were things that made parents feel included. And once you had actually met the staff and communicated with them, then if there was something going on, you know, you were more apt to approach them. And I think that's missing in the mental health system in general. I just want to go back to this question about friends and friendship and relationships. Um, you know, our top-down mental health system uh, is just hyper-vigilant about preventing any kind of relationships between staff and the people being served because, oh, my God, somebody might end up sleeping with somebody. And I, and I, you know, obviously that's not something you want to have happen. I don't think it, don't think it ever happened at TAS when I was there anyway. But because of that, this 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 hypervigilance, there's, there's all these barriers, you know. And you, boy, if you go to these professional things, they're always talking about boundaries and stuff, like the be all about how you should do stuff. I didn't have that opinion, and I didn't uh, preach boundaries. And and you talking about, you know, having these picnics and stuff and getting together, and I would bring my kids 
to these things. And, and we would play, you know, we'd, uh, we had a picnic, we ended up playing softball or volleyball and stuff. And I'm out on court and I'm playing with, I don't know who these people are half the time. And, and it's just about being a normal kind of a healthy environment for people. I had a friend who, uh, who was a therapist, mental health therapist, and a uh, person she had been working with uh, died in a tragic uh, uh, incident. And she wrote a uh, story about that, and it was published in a local paper. And she was nervous about referring to that person as her therapy client because that's there was kind of a confidentiality thing, and she didn't want to use that term. And so she referred to this person who had died as her friend. I mean, she had been the therapist for this person for many, many years. The woman got censored by the Minnesota uh, Board of Social Work because you're not supposed to be friends with the people you're working with. Oh, oh my gosh. And, and you know, that I, I was always pushing back on that. Sometimes I got myself in trouble, you know, uh, <laughs> talking about that. I, I you know, I, I didn't I didn't want staff to be sleeping with clients, but I, I wanted people to be friends. I, and I, I, these guys I run into now in the neighborhood, I'll see them and I'll run into them before COVID. I'd run into them in restaurants and run into them at a twins game and stuff. These are my friends. You know, these are people that, that we work together. It wasn't like I was the boss and they were the patient, you know, we were, we were in this together. I think it's poetically balanced that both you and I, now that we are retired, are active in our respective NAMIs. You know, you're active in NAMI Hennepin, and I'm active in NAMI Ramsey. And um, that just shows that we are, you know, continuing to be involved. And, you know, what you do in your volunteer life is part of friendships as well. And it's all a a beautiful package, and you mentioned normal relationships or normal. Let me just let me, let me just jump in and say I'm not okay. friends with any of the staff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that speaks volumes. <laughs> there you go. I don't do anything, I don't do anything so. I'm retired eleven years. I don't do anything socially with the staff. Still, well, well, you love the clients. Love the clients, yeah. So, um, so anyway, back, so normal things that living a normal life is what everybody wants. And um, so you mentioned that some people in the mental health system don't think recovery is possible. And you've given us a good idea of the fact that um, clients, even with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia, do recover, do live normal lives, do um, take trips and so forth is do you have anything to add about what recovery really means? And if you had to list like three ingredients for recovery for somebody with serious mental illness, what would those things be? Well, you're not going to limit me to three, are you? Well, you can say more. <laughs> I'll let you go farther. <laughs> I got I got a couple. I got a couple of things to say. One is these these so these guys, you know, these guys I ran into here a couple weeks ago, and 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 they're you know they're probably not even a even among lodges they're kind of like superstars. I mean, that not all lodges are going to work as well as this, but these guys these these four guys have been living together in this house with basically no supervision at all for 17 years. None of them have been hospitalized during that time. None of them have been arrested as far as I know. They're all working. One of the guys retired now last year at 80, but they, you know, they own two of the guys own a boat and a motor together. They go fishing all the time. These guys go on trips. These guys are recovered. This is what recovery looks like. And we, you know, we, we talk and talk and talk about recovery, but you don't see any recovery in the mainstream system. These, these, this is what recovery looks like. And I want to, I want to just, this is maybe going to be a reacher off the, <laughs> to another, <laughs> another topic, but I, but I want to throw this in. I, as I was talking, thinking about this the other day, I remember this advertisement I saw years ago, uh, and it was a print ad for the University of Minnesota. And it was a very simple, very powerful ad. It was just a photo of this guy, this kid that was looked like he was 10, 12 years old. I don't know. And he was playing little league and he was sliding into home plate. And there was another 10, 12 year old kid trying to tag him out. There's an umpire calling him safe. And there were parents cheering in the background. And the only words on the ad was that this kid, I don't, I was calling him Tommy. I can't remember what his name was. Tommy had his heart 
had a heart transplant at the UM at the U of M two years earlier. And I, I get choked up about I, I, I when I think about that now, I get choked up about that ad. That's a powerful ad. They weren't telling you a bunch of statistics about how many heart transplants they did and how wonderful they are. They were showing you this kid sliding into home plate, you know, and maybe he's safe, maybe he's out, who in the hell knows. The important thing is he's recovered. He's out there playing little league for crying out loud. And and that's what I want for people with mental illnesses. I want recovery. I don't want them to be surviving in the community. I want them thriving in the community. I want them. I want them going on fishing trips to Alaska. I want them buying boats. I want them having friends and buying cars and going to the Grand Canyon and stuff like that. That's what I wanted to do. That that is beautiful, and that's recovery, thriving. I I really like that word. So I think, John, um, I, one thing I just wanted to say, um, we've been talking about the guys at TAS Unlimited, because it is a lot of the clients are men, but there's plenty of women there too. So I just want, if anyone is listening and has a daughter with serious mental illness, just know that TAS Unlimited is for men and women. Yes, it is. They serve more men than women, but yes, absolutely, it works. And statistically, the women do just as well, if not better, than the men, but we get more men referred into the program. So, John, thank you so much for um, talking with me. You're just one of my favorite people because I love how you bent the boundaries and pushed the walls of the mental health system and that you're continuing to do that. And I try to try to model you everywhere I go. Thank you. Let me just let me just thank you for your book. I had a chance to read the uh, you know that early copy that came out, and I just think it's a great story. Uh, it's a story that needs to be told. I, I've run into a lot of parents over the years who have just an enormous amount of frustration about how poorly the system works, and I I, I share your frustration. Thank you, John, and I um, thank you for your book. It, I think. People should know that it's their Lodge Magic. You can look it up anywhere on a bookstore or Amazon. Whether anyone's interested in sending someone to Cast Unlimited or not, it does include vivid pictures of recovery, like you described, and happiness and thriving. So that's what um, everybody wants for their family members or their friends. So if you're in another part of the mental health system, you could still learn from your book as well about how to make that part better. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, please visit z.umn.edu forward slash fix what you can.